0: Hi there, Nicholas Vince here. This week on The Chattering Hour, I'm joined by Julian Sands. We talk about his extraordinary and enriching experiences filming The Killing Fields, how a room with a view was very nearly cancelled, flying in Warlock, spiders in Arachnophobia and rats in Phantasma dell'Opera, David Cronenberg's Naked Lunch and Boxing Helena. We talk about those and much, much more up next on The Chattering Hour with Julian Sands. Julian Sands' career spans over 30 years and includes titles such as Oxford Blues with Rob Lowe, Ken Russell's Gothic... Leaving Las Vegas, The Painted Bird, and on TV, 24, Smallville, and Stephen King's Rose Red. Julian, thank you so much for joining me here today. My pleasure, Nick. Um, so firstly, I wanted to start with, kind of take you right back to the very beginning, if I may, and your childhood. So you were born and brought up in Otley in West Yorkshire?
1: No, the, 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 Ot- the Otley uh, connection is a bit of a misnomer. I happened to be born in Otley. Ah. Uh-huh. Nearest hospital when my mother went into labour, I suppose. But I never lived there. It was up the not very far away, about eight miles up the road. Right. Uh, a village called Gargrave. Uh, and the nearest town will be Skipton, um, not Otley. Um right. And uh, I grew up in the Yorkshire Dales till I was... 11, with my brothers and my mother, uh, my parents had split up, which was quite a radical thing in the uh, 1960s. And um, we had a wonderful Swallows and Amazons, Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer, very rural, very uh, um, free right. uh, uh, childhood. And then, uh, so, so, and my brothers all still live close to where we grew up. So I go up and see them uh, often. I, right. still, I still love the Yorkshire Dales for the countryside, for the walking, but for the people.
0: Yeah, yeah. I have family up in Halifax. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, York, York, the Yorkshire Dales
1: is, you know, the West riding and it's further south. Yeah. Different. different yeah. Um, we were more on the in the limestone country. But,
0: right. Right, well, yeah, in the dales, then you're. I'm immediately thinking of James Harriet, and rightly so. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, when did you get into acting?
1: Well, I, uh, I was always interested in performing. You know, as a little boy, my mother was part of the local amateur dramatic society in the village, and there was in the village pantomime and the nativity plays and um re- remember asking a teacher when i was about 7 you know how do you become an actor <laughs> i mean maybe i don't know what i sounded like but um i they said Ooh, you know it was uh, it wasn't something anybody had any reference to or any understanding of so but at age 11 i got a scholarship to go away to a boarding school in hampshire and that really shifted my the access, the access of my thinking, because uh, away at boarding school um, there were people from many different backgrounds, uh, a much broader cultural education. I think London was close. We'd go to theatre, museums, the galleries, and also locally, Farnham Rep was very active. So I became much more, and the school drama society. It was very active. I was very immersed in it and the debating society. And although I always liked the idea of being an actor, it seemed remote. And I, I thought about many, many other ways to spend my life. Um, but I was in the school debating society, sort of filling in UCA forms, university forms. And somebody, a girl from a a school we were debating with and said to me you know you should think about being an actor and she gave me the prospectus for the Central School of Speech and Drama in London and I applied and I was accepted and although at drama school I had the most rich and thrilling time London 76 to 79 it was a huge spectrum of Experience and energy and anarchy and radicalism. it was fantastic. But everybody seemed so much more glamorous and talented and, and confident. Uh, it, and yet I, you know doggedly never allowed my belief to be compromised. And uh, the first two or three years after drama school, you know, just working in little youth theatres and theatre and education, pub theatres, a lot of the people I'd been so admiring of, I don't want to say envy envying of, but admiring of, humbled by, had decided they couldn't hack the life of being an actor. I mean, sharing digs, living in squats, going hand-to-mouth, the palpable insecurity every day. But I loved all that. And then... um, uh, And I was in lots of people's home movies, little independent movies from the Filmmakers Co-op. Derek Jarman was a huge influence, great friend and supporter during that period. And, And then I... through a series of circumstances, which were fairly um, circuitous, I ended up auditioning for the role of Greystoke, Tarzan, in the film Greystoke, Hugh Hudson was making. I didn't have an agent, Uh, but I'd been spotted and uh, and recommended. And there are many, many people auditioning. And the first incarnation of the production I was being groomed, I was doing monkey training and gym work and all of it. But then that, in then it all got put on hold. But the director, Hugh, wanted me to stay on training with the monkey people and in the gym and you know becoming Greystoke. But by the but Putnam left the project, and by the time it was set up again, new producers. Um, they wanted to see more new people than I was, they wanted that. And, um, and I wasn't ultimately cast as Greystoke, uh, Christopher Lambert was, and did a very good job. And yet during that period, I did have an agent. I got an agent on the, who was expecting, you know, I don't know what. And Roland Joff, uh, David Putnam had left that project to go and set up the killing fields. Uh, with Roland Joffé, by a group of journalists in Cambodia, in, in set in uh, seven seventy nine, um, set in um, uh, seventy five, and um, filmed in eighty three, and he wanted unknown people to play these roles, and was happy to meet me, Roland, and uh, I was cast as the journalist John Swain, Sunday Times journalist, and that turned out to be the most formative, extraordinary, enriching, profound experience for which was, I can only think was so much more important than Greystoke might have been. Greystoke might have gone in things in a different direction. But there I met amazing people, formed real friendships, which still endure. And Roland Joffe, I've worked with him again, playing Louis XIV in his film, Vatel, with Jared Depardieu. And we're talking at the moment about doing a film uh, about classical music and um, during the um, period in Germany of uh, the Nazi period with the Jewish camps. So, um, anyway, so that was a long answer to your very simple question about Otley.
0: That's a brilliant answer. You, I've just been ticking off questions as you've been as you've been oh. going through. It's it's great because I was, I was. You taught a little about the Killing Fields, obviously, and you're saying it's incredibly formed. What what was the most challenging part of making that film?
1: There was uh, there were so many, uh, and, and I mean, at a basic acting level, I haven't done. i I mean, I've done little, these little couple of TV things and a little bit of you know, Super 8 work with Derek and other people. It was believing in myself that I'm an actor and I'm in this big movie. Um, uh, should I be acting, you know, performing or just... But Roland was brilliant at just said uh, stripping all that. Forget your training. You don't have to just be, you know. I think that was a, a performing challenge was just to be. But emotionally, psychologically... Being immersed in that material, which deals with the Khmer Rouge and their policy of um, genocide in Cambodia, uh, working and living with the many people who had come through that experience, it was so humbling. So, but so meaningful in, in, in as a life lesson. Thank you very much. That I've just been served the most extraordinary Scotch egg. Um, And um, it was, um, so the challenge was just Mm. enjoying with my sanity intact, I'd say. Um, uh, 16 weeks in, um, in Thailand. It sounds so exotic and glamorous, and in many ways it was, but immersed in this, you know, diabolical material, which ultimately prevails with uh, something life affirming and hopeful
0: uh, with the survival of Hang Noor, played by Death Prime. I thought, I was watching again and research. I saw it years ago, I must have seen it on TV. I don't think I saw it in the cinema, but I think what struck me particularly was the, the boys, the children with guns because yeah. the Khmer the Khmer rouge were yeah. so young they were teenagers
1: you know we went to a, a prison uh, a, a refugee camp on the Thai Cambodian borders and um which were being administered i think by the UN HCR and but amongst all these refugees here we could meet and talk to they were clearly being marshalled, regulated by Khmer Rouge cadre, who were then there as faux refugees. But they were kids, you know, kids. Yeah, it was very shocking. Yeah. Very shocking.
0: Yeah. Well, then you you finished that, and um, it made a long
1: no, no, time. No, no, no. Keep, let's keep talking. Let's keep <laughs>
0: so So... Um, well, I'm sorry, what I was meaning—you you finished making um, the killing fields where you met John. I'm sorry, M- I put you in. No, 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 no. <laughs> no I've, you carry on eating. I'll talk whilst you're, whilst you're eating. Um, I know you became friends with John Malkovich.
1: Yeah, um, I'm a friend, I was yeah. chatting with him this morning. It's funny. It, um, uh, Roland was very concerned that John and I would have antipathy. Because Roland saw me as this sort of sensitive English guy, and John from kind of rough, um, urban New York um, indulgent background. (laughs) The moment we met, it was just um, such an instant bond, which endures to this day, which is wonderful
0: yeah yeah. It's, yeah it's it's really unusual to actually make that kind of friendship in this business yeah. you know, that you
1: I think well, without John it would have been very difficult to sort of endure that four months with um, the feeling of um, yeah um, togetherness I would say I mean quite yeah. a quite a number of people working on the production yeah. have breakdowns of one kind or another.
0: But um, yeah. So, but um, yeah. It
1: was
0: great. Yeah, and then and then you went on to something completely different, which is a room with a view. The Merchant Ivory, mm-hmm. a room with a view. Did that just come about as a normal casting, or did they call call you in? Or? Yeah, I'd done
1: a couple of films in between, and because I'm mind, what I knew for after the bills was that the more film experience I could get, the more confident and competent I would become with the medium, and I liked the medium very much. And I you know, spent time training for theater and done theater, but um, I sort of eschewed theater opportunities in the interim. So I had worked uh, on things, and then my then agent um, said, uh, Jim, um, Jim Ivory, Ishmael Merchant would like to meet you. I had seen their films. I've been familiar with um, Savages and the Bostonians, and it was very, I like the aesthetic. Um, and it was, yes, it was a, a straightforward, I mean, there was a meeting, there was a reading, there was a subsequent reading with other girls who might play Lucy. You know, filming began in Florence and it was the most incredible picnic and uh, such a harmonious group of people, so elegant. And so nobody, I think they tried to cancel the production the week before filming because they just didn't see it having any market. And the provision was look, we'll, from Goldcrest, I think, was we will do this, but only if you can have John Travolta playing my part and Glenn Close playing Helena's part, kind of, you know, admiring as I am of both those players. It's a bit odd. <laughs> but uh, Ismail prevailed and got things filming, and uh, it was, um, there still is a sort of a, an enduring Global reference to what romantic love can be. What, what, and of course for Florence, I mean, it it must have put so many billions into its economy from people who wanted wanted to go there. Prior to that, it was a little bit of an academic destination of um, on the sort of you know grand tour. Right. It became you know the place of love which it still is
0: yeah it's a beautiful beautiful city I remember going there as a kid I was curious because this is obviously based on a book had you read the book before no I read it
1: I hadn't read any Forster
0: no I had I'd read um,
1: Passage to India and I read Room of the View uh, but uh, honestly I'm much better just working from Ruth's script so I I read it with more attention a couple of years after we'd filmed.
0: Right, right. You then went on, I mean, another, another film I'd like to talk to you about is Gothic, mm-hmm. um, playing uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley. How, what sort of research did you do on that? Or again, did you just look at the script and say, this, this is how it is written? this is the character I'm going to play. Well, more the latter. But I had studied Shelley
1: at school. You know, I had a sense of him. Um, I met Richard Holmes, who had written this extraordinary biography called Shelley, The Pursuit. And I... But, you know... You can do all the prep you want. When you're working with Ken Russell, it doesn't matter because he has his own ideas. And it was pretty intense and crazy, demonic in in some ways. And um, he, he drove the film. Far more than any performance choices I made. I just reacted to what he wanted. Tried to, anyway. I, 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 um, it's very gratifying that people still, you know, talk to me about that in very favourable way. But it's... Um, um, Gabriel was wonderful to work with as um, Byron, and Natasha, dear Natasha, as Mary Shelley. Um, Natasha Richardson, I'm mm. talking Gabriel Byrne for your listeners. It was um, very high energy, very unregulated uh, in the sense that Ken's, he was an auteur, he was operating the camera, he was lighting, he was shouting a lot because nothing ever quite, you know, he didn't like to compromise and as you know when filmmaking is all about compromise and um uh but i enjoyed it and interestingly about four or five years ago i was um uh asked to write the preface to a new anthology of uh, the work of keats and shelley which has been published by the keats shelley house museum in rome and it coincided with me working in Rome on a film, and I, I was happy to write that preface uh, and really reconsidered their work. At school, it, all, it all seemed a bit middle-distant to me. I was much more into Harold Pinter and, and Ted Hughes, you know, this sort of muscular, um, economical writing, contemporary writing. And I, I found the passion the intellect, the philosophical, political depth and intensity of their writing, both Keats and Shelley, different, um, was just so thrilling. And I said, "Look, uh, I, I'd, I'd love to do a reading at the house," which resulted in doing fifteen readings because they—they they all, you know, there was people wanted to come. It's not a big space, and then um, uh, I, I've taught that um, in theatres, The Keith Shelley Show. Well, it's not called The Keith Shelley Show, but it, it, I mean, there is a very, we did during lockdown, well, lockdown during COVID time last year in August, there was a window, I went to Rome and we recorded recorded it live with a small audience and it's on YouTube. Um, I can send you a link if Please you like. Please do. Um, and for any of your listeners, if you want to see it, it's Keats Shelley live in Rome. Julian Sands uh, just putting Keats Shelley house. Julian Sands reading. It'll come up. It. It was. I was very. Uh, and I was supposed to be doing it at the Edinburgh Festival um, in in August, but um, uh, maybe next year.
0: Yeah yeah hopefully yeah hopefully things will start returning. i am absolutely fascinated that you're um because I know Keats because we studied Keats at school at her no. school, but I'm really unfamiliar with Shelley, so I'd love to hear you um reading. talk well, about
1: when I talk about them, I tell <clears> them <story throat> briefly, and it's not um um it's an abbreviated version of the show. Um, I tell their story through their words
0: and my own. Right, right. So you mentioned Ted Hughes. Um, yeah. And Are you familiar with his Oedipus Rex?
1: Well, I, I've, I've read it. I've never seen it produced.
0: No.
1: But I used Ted, one of Ted Hughes' poems as part of my audition at drama school, I remember, Hawk Roosting.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've got the, the, the book, The Crow Poems. Um, okay. on the on the shelf behind me and so on. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Hughes. And the, the writing of the Oedipus Rex is just so brilliant because yeah. of the way he breaks, he doesn't use punctuation, he uses his spaces. And it's extraordinary. Um when do, when do you do my emails? <laughs> do you um so you kind of moved to America to when did you kind of make the switch from being based in the UK, to America.
1: I, um, after Room in the View, I did a film called Siesta in Madrid, also with Gabriel Byrne, and many fantastic uh, actors, actresses. Uh, Isabella Rossellini, Jodie Foster, Alexis Sale, Grace Jones, Martin... Um, um, Sheen. Um, it, 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 uh, it was a surreal film, a sort of Tibetan Book of the Dead, kind of. Mary Lambert, who had oh. done Madonna and Prince videos. Um, and when that was finished, uh, I went to stay with John uh, Malkovich in New York. Just for a couple of weeks, and uh, and I was break. I was, it was a relationship, and I was breaking up, Well it, it was it had broken up, um, and so and John's then wife was going out on tour in a play, so I went to stay with him for a couple of weeks. I mean, that was a plan, two or three weeks, but I met someone else whilst I was there, which wasn't a plan, uh, but I did, and so I stayed on a little bit and then kept just extending the stay. And um, she was living in New York, she a New Yorker. And uh, so I stayed on. And then, but I should say, and and John had introduced me to her, but um, 35 years later, we were still together. So there was a reason, a good reason to stay on. And you know, if you're an actor, you kind of live on the road. You go, I am, I and if you, I, 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 so I have a base, I suppose base camp would be America, but I, I love living in England. I'm English and have lucky enough to have a place near this pub. And, um, um, so it's sort of probably, there's no set pattern as to how time is divided, right? right. It's a satellite,
0: you know. Right, right, right. Now, one of the films that you did um, that I wanted to ask you about is Warlock. Yeah. Um, I was curious how much of the aerial work, the flying work, were you able to do yourself? It with? was all. It was all
1: me. It was all pre-digital. Um, right. Yeah. So everything was analog. I suppose you call it. We had green screens, but for me to fly, that meant me being in a harness, in a rig and being swung around at the end of a rope on a crane. And, um, you know, I loved all that. It was sort of, wow, I'm flying. You know, it was great physical stuff. Uh, it wouldn't be allowed now because of health and safety. but um, And it wouldn't be necessary now because they would digital, uh, digitalize it all. But um, it was old school warlock, much of it, which is why I think it had um, has enduring charm um, to those who are interested in that film and, and films of that sort of genre. Which I was very much growing up. Love Hammer Horror. Ah. Love Cushing and Chris Lee and um, and uh, so I was thrilled. To um, to play warlock.
0: Well, uh, up- sorry, no, I was going to ask you mentioning because I meant to ask you earlier on about the films that you watched growing up. Yeah. So was it was it horror or science fiction or
1: anything? Everything. Really? I think you know if, if I had a favorite film, I had many favorites from and war films, of course, were so you know Guns of Navarone or and the whole genre um westerns i loved um zulu was um when it came out in the i think mean, i saw it every night for a week and um and my brothers still to this day call me zulu i mean that's their name zulu because doesn't to go from julian to zulu to zulu is not difficult <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, right. And amazing. Yeah, I remember seeing that in the cinema when it first came out. An extraordinary effect. It's just an, an amazing story. And, be, yeah. and Michael Caine and Stanley, Stanley yeah. Baker. Not Stanley Baxter, but Stanley Baker. Stanley <laughs> <Back>. <laughs> A different talent entirely. Um, another scary movie that um, uh, you did was Arachnophobia. Did you have to deal with any real spiders during that? And are you okay with spiders? Many many real spiders. And they all had
1: eight eight legs. I do not have an issue with spiders. I'm perfectly happy with them. And there was was certainly the scene, my death scene, where Frank Marshall, directing, wanted spiders all over my face. They tried putting them on during a couple of takes, but they just... They'd all run away, but so they couldn't get a critical mass for the effect. And so they said, look, the way we think we can do that, if we put a tennis, not a tennis, uh, a fencing mask hmm. on your face, cut a hole out, put a funnel, drop all the spiders in, spoon them in. And once they're all in a sort of mass, we'll pull the mask away and then we'll get the shot. And I said, sure, that's fine. But to do that, I just sort of put my mind in a Zen state because all these Chris's, you know, with their legs running around your eyes and lips, you know. You know. But it was a good shot. People loved it or it freaked them out. I did a film of Il uh, Fantasma dell'Opera, um Phantom of the Opera for Dario Argento, where he wanted me lying in bed with rats all over me. And I I am much more, I I am a little phobic about rats. They kind of, they give me that kind of strange reaction. And, um, um, but again, you know, you just put your mind in the thing and all that little scratching around your foot. So that's what the, you know, acting can be very emotional deeply psychological, almost intolerably unburdening sometimes. But it can also be a lot of fun. It's fun. And um, so you find the way to have fun with whatever the particular challenge is.
0: Right. Because one of the other, um, another extraordinary film, um, that you're in, um, which I only watched recently. And that's Naked Lunch. Oh, yeah. David Cronenberg. Well, I mean, my connect I said on this channel before, my because of course he was filming Nightbreed when he was working on the script. Oh, okay. And Gabriele Martinelli, who was one of the producers on Nightbreed, went on to do uh, Naked Lunch. And th- that's the closest I have connection. What was the experience? How did you get involved, and what was the experience? Well, I, I, was,
1: I, I was offered it. I mean, I, 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 um, I, I'd met, and um, uh, I'd met Cronenberg. Um, I'd met, uh, who wrote it? Tell me who wrote Naked Lunch? Um, um, William S. Burroughs. Yeah, I'd, 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 I'd met uh, William Burroughs in LA at a gallery where he was showing some of his artwork and there was a dinner afterwards. And this was before the film was talked of. It was a strange man, as you'd imagine, as he comes across in any interview. Uh, sort of creepy, but interesting. Um, and this, I, I, I'm not even sure I'd read Naked Lunch. I sort of thought I'd read it because it was one of the books one should read, but. Um, but I read the script and thought, wow, this is kinky. And I said, of course, yes, um, happily. Cronenberg, when I met him in Toronto, was the most kind of retiring academic, like a librarian or an English teacher. I was so, it's, so not what I expected. Um, and uh, that I saw the film... At the time, but I saw it again about six years ago at a festival. My, it's so subversive. It's so bizarre and weird and political. It would never get made today, for sure. So, um, but I'm very happy to have been involved with it.
0: Yeah, I I was looking. I was amazed at the effects. Peter Weller, Hmm. I, I think. I mean, it's a it's a great cast th- throughout. You've got Ian Holm, Peter uh, Weller. Yeah. And, and an, extraordinary, an extraordinary thing. You're talking about uh, David Croner, but i thinking you've worked with lots of different directors. Do you have a particular style of direction or director that you enjoy working with? I'm trying to say, you know, how do you like to be directed, if that's a proper question? I, I,
1: everyone's different. I mean, as minimally or as or as specific as they want, uh, um, I, I macro, micro, mega. I, I don't mind whatever they want. The the director is the filmmaker, mm. and I am, I am happy to collaborate. Um, I just I was just in Hong Kong, filming. With Mike Figgis, my ninth film with Mike Figgis, which um, is pretty uh, amazing, mm-hmm. and um, he uh, and I and one of the reasons I like working with him because he he is such an auteur and has such a sense of what he wants, and yet it is open to this. The surprises you can bring and is really worthwhile. You know, he's really substantial. You know, he's in, intelligent, has a visual gift, has a sense of his own work. But he's been a performer, he was an actor, he was and did a lot of, sort of performance work with a, a troupe called The People Show. And I think mostly I like working with directors who have some empathy for the acting process you know quite often they come from a technical background and therefore don't really understand the resonances of what a performance and that's okay you compensate for mm. that you, you know you get it mm. so i don't i'm not but if i mean i like the people that really understand it but and the, and the less technically exact and accurate type of film, you know, art films, independent films. I just did a film with um, Glenn Danzig, who had a band called The Misfits. And he, you know, his fantasy was to make um, a spaghetti Western vampire thing. And he figured out with his, you know, small cameras and limited budget, that there was a lot of enthusiasm and interest in this kind of almost home movie ex- experimental genre, and um, it's called Death Rider in the House of the Vampires, and every member of the cast is a vampire, and uh, it's it's fantastic. Um, the trailer is on YouTube, um, and worth worth. A yes, peek. yeah, I. But, I, I... But what I loved about working with Glenn was that he was so unfiltered because he didn't come from any sort of prepared filmic background. Independent films are so much more liberated Mm. than studio films, which are governed by so much corporate um, requirements, just due diligence. I understand that. It's, Mm. you know, it's a business, but it's not like that if someone just says, hey, you want to do a movie in my back garden and rock up. and you
0: know. Yeah. One of the... Um, an extraordinary um, performance, as far as I'm concerned, of yours, and I wasn't familiar with at all, and that is in Boxing Helena, where I've never seen somebody... What I loved about it was the vulnerability you brought to that character that explains some very weird behaviour. How did that project come about? How did you get involved in that?
1: Well, uh, I I think I certainly wasn't the first. um, I think the project was going to be shot with Kim Basinger and Ed Harris. Uh. And then Kim... Called out for various reasons. It fell into some kind of lawsuit, but the producer still wanted to make it anyway. I think he got Sherilyn involved. And through a security route, came to me. And I was so I found I found it to be like a sort of Grimm's fairy tale. There was something mm so that, that I didn't find the person I was playing to be, you know, this kind of demonic mad monstrous person but somebody who was actually incredibly tender and and naive misguided but for him it was a love story
0: mm. and
1: it, whatever he was doing was about love and um that was the approach I took um, because it wasn't a butcher, and uh, and 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 Jennifer Lynch was who'd written it was directing it was um, very supportive and uh, Sherilyn very beautiful. It was um, strange film, incredibly contemporary. Incredibly mm-hmm. opposite for today, and I think um, um, when it came out in the mid-nineties, it was uh, it was hated. Um, but people embrace it now as a um, as something much more serious than perhaps it was presented as twenty years ago.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If anyone hasn't seen it, I really do recommend it because it's, um, apart from your performance as well, but I think Sherilyn's performance. Yeah, she's wonderful. The two of you working together, you know, when she literally has so little to work with at some points in the film as well. Yeah, and the way it was shot was, yeah. Yeah,
1: it was very good. Um, Thank
0: you. You mentioned earlier on doing um, a one person show on um, Keats and Shelley, but I know you did another one, man. i show. send you the
1: link, yes.
0: Yes. Um, a celebration of Harold Pinter. Yeah. Now, how did that come about? Because you, you, John directed it, John Malkovich directed it, yes?
1: Well, it, John did direct it.
0: Um, it came about, I'd, I'd done
1: a play of David Hare's called Stuff Happens. And I was at lunch, and Harold was there. and He was very interested in this play, and he wanted to know a lot about it. And, and I, the end of lunch, and Harold had been somebody I had revered for the previous you know, thirty years, and I had done a film of one of his plays called The Room, um, by which Judge, um, um, Donald Pleasance was in and Linda Hunt. Made by Robert Altman. And uh, so, and I've been in his plays, but he said uh, he was he was ill. He had this sort of esophageal cancer. And he said he was supposed to be doing a reading of some of his own work, but he didn't want to cancel it. Would I do it for him? And I said, I would. He said, good. Well, that means, you know, working with me for three or four days on this extraordinary intimate uh, poetry and prose which I, I had no idea of his um, within it in such an economical way he reveals his intelligence his humor his his romance and his um, humanity and those aren't things you would automatically assume applied to Harold Pinter. It was a very uh, intense few days, but a masterclass for me, reinvigorated, reinvented my own approach to performing because he was a very good director as well as being an actor. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so we did, I did his show for him. It seemed to go well, and he was... uh, happy, sat there in the third row, mouthing the words along with me. Um, But then after he died, I repeated the show as a memorial tribute in Los Angeles because other places things were going on, but nothing seemed to be going on there. And people came who were connected to Harold or familiar with his work, but nobody had experienced this prose and poetry in which he really revealed himself in the first person. And, uh, and John didn't attend, but he saw a recording. I showed it to him. And his idea was, why don't we you know, refine this, evolve it, turn it into a legitimate theatrical entertainment and you know, play it somewhere. So we, we, we did that over a few months, over a few countries. And we took it to the Edinburgh Festival where it was, you know, uh, it went down well. People liked it. And uh, we took it to New York. And, and for about five years, I did a couple of New York runs, but toured it many, many countries and all over America. It was, um, it was, a, it was a great event to do that. And, but I was never alone on stage. Harold was always there. And uh, in, in this sort of like a bird of prey sitting on my shoulder, it was a, it was a, a wonderful thing, so wonderful privilege. And and we've talked about reviving it. I said earlier that um, I was supposed to be doing Keith Shelley at the Edinburgh Festival this year, but I would have added, I think, a couple of Harold shows because it was 10 years ago that we did it at the Edinburgh Festival, 10 years this year, I think.
0: Uh, that, yeah, that, that, that is something that I would absolutely love to attend. and
1: I will, uh, I will. and if, if there are any pop-up shows in London before, I will. Yeah. So I had dinner with Antonio last night and we, we were talking about it, so it might, it might happen. It was, um, it's, it's such rich material and something about, and he was very possessive of it, very personal to him, Didn't like anyone else reading it. But, um, you know, he imparted to me what he wanted from it and something seemed to to work.
0: Well, I I also have to say thank you as well because we met shortly before I was doing my one-man show a year before last. And you gave me the best piece of advice to any actor who is, which was, the audience is your friend. Yeah, well. Wow. And it was, I have to thank you so much, from that, because literally every night in the two minutes before I got my cue to go on, that was what I was thinking. Particularly, on, I remember it particularly on the first night before I was you know, standing at the edge of the stage and thinking, what the hell have I just?" got myself into this time. Yeah. <laughs> it's so easy
1: to, be actor to believe that the audience has come to throw stones, to find fault, to point and snigger. But that's one's paranoia. That's mm. what's, one's insecurity. That's what goes into making us actors. But they've come out of love, expectation, admiration, a desire to be... Re- reflected, refracted, entertained, amused, moved. And you are the vessel for their own spirit. And that's what's, um, their, their own need. You're the, um, and it's hard, to, it's hard to learn that. It's hard to believe it until mm-hmm. you do.
0: It, yes, well, it, that's so beautifully and poetically put. Thank you. Um, we're almost at the end of our hour together. Um, one th- what I would like to end up by doing is, and there are so many other films I'd love to discuss with you, like The Painted Bird, um, mm-hmm. yeah. which was actually, let's talk very briefly about The Painted Bird if we can. How Again, how did you get involved and what was that experience oh,
1: like? I, I had done the, the Pinter show we've talked about in um, the Czech Republic and the director had seen it and said I'd love to work together on something sometime and um, and then he got involved then he the, the painted bird which he'd been working on for so long he was able to make the first section and then he would put that together and then he'd look for the money to make the second section and and it was done shot chronologically and I think just before finding and so he never knew who his cast could be until he got each section completed. And then um, uh, he he, he called me to say, look, I'm about to soon start shooting on, I think it was the fifth section. And uh, I, with Harvey Keitel in Southern Bohemia and this bleak, depressed, depraved story within the story of the film, which for those who don't know, The Painted Bird by um, Josie Kaczynski tells the story of a young boy at the end of the Second World War in the hinterland of Eastern Europe trying to find his family. So it's an odyssey as he goes through the tableau vivant of the human condition as it was and meets with every kind of... um, depravity and every kind of heightened uh, and affirming positivity within people. Um, My section was, I played somebody who took advantage of him and was cruel and and, um, narcissistic but it was an extraordinary deep bleak work and it's it's a privilege to explore that sometimes mm. and the film is a masterpiece it's beautiful yes. it's so uh, it, it is uh, it's not easy to watch but it's worth every moment
0: yes yeah well, i was particularly particularly in your section um it's fairly quickly revealed what the problem is with the character. Pretty was, was done so subtly and cleverly, actually, just done in one shot. So you knew exactly what was going on. You experienced the full horror of it, but there's nothing explicit. There's nothing, it, it, which I think the, the genius of it is because it leaves it to the audience to understand and, that, and play it in their head. Um, what's what's been going on? Um, extraordinary, and, and again, as I say, wonderful performance. Um, right, we should just tie up now, and I'd like to end by asking you the luggage in the crypt questions.
1: The luggage in the crypt? Right?
0: Yes. <laughs> just this idea of what would you take with you into the afterlife? Um, as a film that you would just think. This is this is something really special.
1: Well, I've seen Zulu so many times, I almost wouldn't need to take it because I could play it in my head. But it would be a lot of fun to take Zulu or Lawrence of Arabia uh, or any of or either Godfather one or two, anything by Ingmar Bergman, anything by the Taviani brothers or. Um, but if it has to be one gosh let's take uh, Lawrence of Arabia
0: ah, funnily enough just happened to be watching it the other day on my birthday as part of my birthday celebrations because I've not seen it since I'd seen it
1: oh.
0: and it's just an uh, extraordinary film Excellent. Yeah. yeah yeah. what about a book
1: well yeah. you'd have I mean, it would have to be the complete works of Shakespeare, but if that's a boring answer, then a single book. I, I read a lot, so it's, um, um, I would say, the complete works of Dickens. Would that count?
0: I mean, I'm trying to think of... Yeah, but, no, no, I, I, I think, you know, getting the complete works of things is when, you know, whenever I think of these things, it, it would have to be that I've got the complete works of um, H.H. Munro yeah. Saki on my show, because yeah. it's just like, I like the fact of sitting down with a huge grape, and that both of those cover the whole of the human condition. Yeah, um, sure. And yeah. massively
1: entertaining yeah. and insightful along the way.
0: Yeah, yeah. What about in, an album? An album. Mm.
1: I think it would probably be um, The Ring Cycle. It's a long album, if that's allowed. (laughs) Of course, yes. Um, uh, I think it would be that, that would be my album of choice.
0: Uh, if that if if that's falls within the spectrum, that definitely falls within the spectrum. Yeah, no, I like I like that as a smart choice because again, okay. it's something that's big and meaty and and yes. mythic. I remember yeah. going up the Rhine and reading all the stories. Okay, you know, holidays as a child and getting the, the books of the, the original stories and so on about the Rhine Gulf, the Rhine minds, um, etc. What about a favourite food or drink? um favorite
1: food i'm not really a foodie i mean for me food is fuel and um uh but let's you know mediterranean cuisine menu mediterranean cuisine would do fine but if um, but uh drink i'm more particular but if having um i mean wine um from both Italy and Spain and France a red wine can be extraordinary let's say a case of um, let's say a case of Vega Cecilia from um, the Riebe del Duero
0: you'll have or to message the... me or email me that to <laughs> make sure I've got the right one Vega
1: Cecilia Vega Sicilia from the Riebe del Duero
0: Okay, okay, that sounds delicious. I shall. Sure. Well, I don't drink alcohol, but I'm, I'll take your word for it. Yeah. Um, what about a piece of visual art? Is painting a statue?
1: Well, You know, the local train um, always pulls into Charing Cross, and the National Gallery is just across there. So whenever I'm early, or um, I go to the National Gallery, and although there's so much. To feast on, I usually end up sitting in front of um, Velasquez's Rokeby Venus and admiring this sort of mysterious, sensual, languid um, female, right. like a nude, looking at her face in a mirror, which he paints, but without. It's it's quite she's inscrutable
0: love right today. right that's just a very good choice. What about a luxury is it the little indulgence that you that you're fond of
1: caviar
0: I mean do you mean you know, sort of that kind of yeah caviar? sure yeah yeah it could be yeah Food caviar, or caviar. be my
1: luxury.
0: <laughs> that sounds like an excellent choice i can see you sitting there watching your film once
1: yes exactly sipping
0: wine eating some caviar that sounds like a great way of spending your time julian thank you so very much this has been absolutely oh. fascinating
1: my pleasure nick and good to see you You're looking so well and i look forward to seeing your show I'm going-
0: my thanks again to Julian Sands, and I really do hope we have a chance to see his one-man show, A Celebration of Harold Pinter, as it sounds fascinating. Join me next week for some more great stories from the world of horror, thriller and suspense. And in the meantime, stay safe and well. The Chattering Hour, hosted by Nicholas Vince, is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Teatime Productions. Producer Chris Rowe, with production support from Manda Rome West. Composer Kevin Macleod. Copyright Teatime Productions.